0: welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for the show. We're speaking on Friday, February 17th, 2023. There has been a lot of attention, of course, on the large influx of asylum-seeking migrants to New York City over the last 10 months or so. Mayor Eric Adams's administration estimates that there are now over 45,000 individuals who have arrived in the city in that span that fit the broader category of asylum seekers on Wednesday, that's February 15th. The mayor announced the city would soon open a seventh humanitarian emergency response and relief center, this one at the uh, Wyndham Hotel in Long Island City, Queens to temporarily serve the continued arrival of asylum seekers coming to New York City. The Relief Center, the mayor said in a press release, would provide 144 rooms to assist families with children and provide them with a range of services. This is uh, a topic that has been uh, an ongoing emergency crisis uh, trend different terms for what people refer to uh, what's been going on over the last 10 months or so as there's been a lot of debate around it the mayor has staked out a number of different uh, positions on it and continued to ask for more federal help he's also asked for state help which seems to be coming to some degree Via Governor Kathy Hochul's recent uh, budget proposal and her executive budget that was recently released, there is some federal aid on the way, but the mayor has asked for more. The mayor declared a state of emergency around this issue back in October. The mayor visited uh, Texas and went to the border in January and then released uh, an op ed in The Washington Post with a six point plan for what he'd like to see done, mostly at the federal level uh, to address this situation. And uh, it, it has seen no shortage of uh, news attention and and debate and conversation, criticism of the mayor, the mayor uh, critical of his critics, and so forth. So I want to uh, have a discussion here today with a couple of people who've been covering uh, this ongoing situation and the larger policies, laws, trends at play to try to provide as much clarity as possible because there is There are a lot of myths, there are a lot of misunderstandings. Uh, There's also not always enough discussion of what's actually happening uh, for the people involved, these uh, 45,000 plus asylum seekers who have arrived in New York City. So that's what we're doing here today. And I'm very pleased to have uh, two guests with me. Felipe de la Oz is a lecturer at NYU and CUNY. He's a member of the editorial board at the New York Daily News. And he's co-founder of Borderlines, a weekly newsletter devoted to immigration policy. And importantly, Felipe de la Oz is also a former contributor with us at Gotham Gazette. Felipe, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Ben. Julia McDonnell Nieto del Rio is an immigration reporter for Documented through Report for America. That's at DocumentedNY.com documented is a non-profit news site devoted solely to covering New York City's immigrants and the policies that affect their lives. Julia, thanks for being here. How are you?
1: Thanks so much, Ben. I'm doing great.
0: So thank you both for, for joining me. Let's try to provide people with as much clarity as possible here in our time together. So um, let's remind everybody, big picture, how we got here. When and how did the situation start? We'll dig into a whole lot of specifics, but um, Felipe, when, when did this start to become something that was on your radar? When did this become something that Mayor Adams was starting to elevate and, and how did that happen?
2: Yeah. So this was uh really last summer that this kind of started being on the kind of New York City specifically, uh, the New York City radar, uh, because at that time what was happening was that there was a effort by the uh, governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, to bus migrants to to New York City. Uh, You know, obviously, New York City uh, is the city best known probably globally for receiving immigrants and always has been. However, this circumstance was a little bit different because of that, you know, very concerted, I would say, political, you know, politically motivated effort by the Texas governor. Uh, The contours have since shifted. I mean, migrants have continued to arrive. It isn't so much about the kind of misleading you know busing uh you know scenario anymore but that was really when things kicked off with what i guess people colloquially are calling the the contemporary uh you know new york city asylum seeker crisis
0: and julia when did this start to be something that you were paying attention to and reporting on and and how did it sort of um get going in your viewpoint
1: right i think it also um came to our attention last summer um Definitely with the busing, it became more of a a national issue. Um, But locally, we were seeing a lot of folks who were um, arriving at shelters um, and and Mayor Adams, um, you know, began to bring this to the attention more of the public as uh, shelters, um, as he said, became more overwhelmed by asylum seekers arriving at the city. Um, And also some folks were coming from different cities like B.C. or Other places across the country hearing on social media that they could come to New York for work opportunities and that shelter would be um, given to them here. So as word spread among um, migrants who were arriving um, in the States, uh, more more folks began to arrive um, in last spring and summer, especially in New York.
0: And as you both said, you know, this was something that uh, Governor Greg Abbott, Republican of Texas, said was uh, something that he was doing in part as a protest of of how the Biden administration is managing the border and federal immigration policy and then also as something of a test of whether new york city and new york state are really as as welcoming to to immigrants as uh they like to claim uh and so forth um but then this has taken a a number of a number of different directions as you just said julian and people not this is not simply something where the governor of texas is putting people on buses this is something where Uh, As far as we know, a number of officials have been trying to do similarly, but then there's also something at play where there's people um, coming across the border who want to come to New York City. How do we sort of how do we understand, um, you know, whoever wants to jump in here, how do we understand, um, you know, Who's who's coming as part of a political ploy, who's coming against their will, who's coming um, because they 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 really want to. And this is the sort of they're seeking asylum. We'll get into what that means in in a little bit more depth in a minute. But um, they're they're coming to the United States to arrive in the United States and seek a different life, a new life here to immigrate to the United States. <laughs> Um, How do we how do we sort of understand um, those differing dynamics and why this was something that wasn't really a big issue prior to last summer? Sure, Uh, I'm
1: uh, happy to start with that or um, I think
0: a lot in that question. Sorry, but yeah, uh, I I mean, how do we sort of separate some some of those different pieces and understand um, why this why this became a new trend? Uh, to such a degree, at least, and you know, sort of, who's coming because they want to? Who's coming because they're part of a political ploy? Um, or maybe, maybe those are often one and the same.
1: Yeah, I think uh, for the folks I've I've been speaking to, it's it's really been a mix. So um, some people arrived at you, you know arrived in Texas and were basically told that there would be more work opportunities and assistance in New York. So, you know, they decided to get on these free buses. Often they didn't have money to, uh, you know, to be able to buy their own plane tickets or bus tickets to go somewhere else. So this even offer of, a free ride to New York is, you know, would be very important to them. So I've heard that from some folks. Um, other folks heard on their own that there might be opportunities um, in New York City through TikTok, through WhatsApp groups on their um, migration journey to the U.S. So it's really been a mix. And and once um, word spread that, uh, you know, shelters were taking folks in uh, in New York, um, as I said, word spread very quickly that there would be somewhere to sleep here um, and for them to find opportunities to potentially move their lives forward. I think a lot of that may be overblown as we see on social media. So a lot of folks that I've talked to once they actually arrived here, um, they saw that maybe the situation was a lot more difficult than what they thought it would be. They've had um, lots of challenges finding work and the shelter situation obviously has been very challenging as well, especially for families with kids. Um, but it's really been a mix of, of the folks I've spoken to who have chosen to come here on their own, um, or were, you know, kind of either pushed or in in some way, um, offered uh, a uh, way to come here that um, would kind of fit or, or help them in, in their journey forward. So they you know, decide to come here for the free with the free transportation that was offered by by the um, governor of Texas or or other ways.
0: Mm-hmm. And again, there's there's apparently been a number of officials. Right. I mean, Mayor Adams has sort of stressed that this was not just a Republican governor doing this, although he's been frustrated. You know, he's expressed frustration with Governor Abbott about this and others. But he stressed that this is also something that some Democratic officials have encouraged, that there's a, there's a mix of of people sort of trying to either um, move people along, so to speak, incentivize, offer travel to New York. Um, not, not simply, uh, not only the, the Republican governor there, Felipe, you were going to jump in. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, well, you know, I, I was going to kind of, um, you know, ping off what, what Julia was saying and and mention too, that, you know, it's true that a lot of folks, um, you know, it's kind of hard to separate those groups because sometimes that perception is fomented, you know, for political reasons, that New York is kind of the, you know, the land of milk and honey and all these sorts of things. And sometimes it also, as Julia was mentioning, spreads organically via, via kind of, you know, networks and social channels among the uh, migrants. And I think, you know, one thing that the public is often missing about, these, you know, these arrivals is that um, because of that, not all of them are staying. In fact, a very large number of people have left New York, you know, and and gone to other states, other other cities as well. Right. Because they found that the reality that they were expecting was a little bit different than what they found. Also, you know, I think crucial to mention here is that. Part of what has been drawing folks to New York is uh, one facet of the arrivals that is sort of novel, that that is a little bit distinct in earlier kind of waves of, of migration, humanitarian migration arriving at the border is, uh, you know, based on the groups that I'm speaking to at the border and the folks that are working with uh, with asylum seekers, there seems to be kind of an increasing number of people who don't have existing social and family connections in the United States. so you know in in earlier eras most or uh, you know at least the the plurality of of arriving asylum seekers might you know be able to uh settle with relatives in in you know in in Pennsylvania somewhere in in Buffalo wherever right you know they they had kind of those existing connections when folks don't really have that and they don't really know where to go oftentimes new york is also kind of a default option you know it 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 sort of is a very well known city they 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 are becoming aware of kind of the shelter mandate and stuff so i think that's also played a role here
0: mm-hmm. um what do we know broadly speaking about um if there are roughly 45,000 asylum seekers who've arrived uh, in the last 10 months or so, as, as the Adams administration count says, and and as far as I'm concerned, you know, that seems like a, a rough estimate. I don't know if that's always a number to be exactly believed and repeated. Uh, it feels like a little bit hard to, um, you know, in, in some of the looking around and asking that I've done a little bit hard to sort of wrap um, one's arms around exactly uh, the number of individuals. But if we if we take that number, um and as you said, Felipe, some have come and left, but um, do we have a, any general sense of of where they are, who is where, what types of living arrangements? There's been a lot of attention on dozens of emergency shelters via hotels that the city has opened. I mentioned this uh, announcement just a couple of days ago on Wednesday, February 15th of the 7th. Uh, what they call HERC, Humanitarian Emergency Response and Relief Center. That's uh, Those are more of the, the temporary uh, centers and uh, areas of resources and rooms to assist people, uh, supposed to be fairly temporarily. Um, there's also been some attention uh, as part of that on these larger sort of tent um, apparatuses that have been erected, some of them taken down with some controversy. Um, Then there's people who do have networks or have found people to connect with who are not staying in city shelters or these, uh, Herk temporary shelters, people who either have uh, some connection to people already in the city or have made some connection. Is there any way that we have a, a sort of breakdown of who's where and and how to know sort of the general gist of of this overall population and and where they are, are their specific neighborhoods that we know most people have. Um, have wound up staying in that if they if they aren't staying in the city shelters and and hotels or the hercs, do we you know, do we know where some people have wound up? as far as I know, um, the main countries I believe that people are coming from are Venezuela, Colombia, peru, um and, and others. Um so that might obviously mean certain communities in New York City where people uh, are able to find. Uh, either people have shared a country of origin or, uh, connections with family or, or acquaintances. Do we have, do we have any insights on that, Julia, that, you know, in terms of things you can share with people to, to understand where people have wound up and how.
1: Sure. So as of about the beginning of February, um, the city said that there were still over 27,000 asylum seekers in the city's care. Um, So, you know, a majority of folks potentially still at at a number of these shelters. Um, I have also met uh, some asylum seekers who have found housing together, for example, at, you know, small apartments across the city through um, organizations that have helped them, churches that have helped them. Um, I've met asylum seekers who were sleeping in churches, um, either for short periods of time or, or longer sometimes. Um, I've also met families who now have um, been in shelters for more than six months, for example, um, hotel shelters or others. So it's really, as we said before with this, it's really a big mix. But um, there, there is a, a, a large, there are a large number of folks who are still Um, in the city's care. Um, And at the beginning of February, uh, the city also said there were there were still 150 to 200 families actually arriving um, in New York per day. Um, That's according to the mayor's office of immigrant affairs. Um, So, you know, there's still a steady stream of folks coming into the city. Um, And now they are those who have arrived, you know, a couple months ago or last summer are definitely making connections and and potentially finding alternative housing through those connections they've made. Um, maybe they've been able to find some work and, and really pay um, pay rent for smaller places. Um, but but it's a mix. And and for the uh, countries of origin, as you said, a lot of Venezuelans, um, as well as people from Colombia, um, Ecuador, Peru, um, also Central Americans, people from Nicaragua. Um, but yes, I met many, many Venezuelans who have, have been mm-hmm. coming to um, New York City.
0: And do we have any general sense of a breakdown of um, uh, families, whether that's uh, a single adult with a child, or or you know multiple adults with a child, or versus? Uh, individuals, sort of single individuals, coming on their own. The the mayor has opened different centers that are either for just, um, I believe, single adult men. Then there's family uh, shelters and and these HERCs, uh, as I mentioned, this latest one would be for for families um, with children. Um, do do we have any general sense of a breakdown of of how many children are among the? Let's just say how many children are among the forty five thousand who are estimated to have arrived in the last ten months.
1: Um, I'm not sure specifically where the breakdown may, may be available, but we do know that at least 10,000 children have been enrolled in New York city schools. Um, I believe at the beginning, um, last spring and summer, it was, um, more single men who were coming, but we started seeing a a steady stream of families as well with children last summer who began Mm -hmm. coming. So, um, it's a mix, but it's a significant number of children, um, who at least we know have been enrolled in New York City schools. So there are a large number of families who who have come to New York City as well.
0: Right, right, and and that's just school age children. So there could easily be at least um, hundreds, if not thousands, maybe even of younger younger than four-year-old or three-year-old children as well. Um, let's try to come back to that in a minute, because I want to um, ask you both a little bit about what we know about services for children and how they're being uh, integrated into city schools and and the type of education they might be getting and services that they need and are getting or are not getting. Um, but let, let's sort of put a, a pin in that for a second. I want to zoom way back out here, um, because I think a good bit of what we discussed so far has been a lot of what's what's been in the news, and you've both been covering, and others have covered. But let's let's zoom back out. Um, Felipe, help people understand the most important sort of underlying laws and rules at play here, especially on the federal level, and what's happening at the border, and what you know is happening at the border uh, means for New York City because of these underlying uh, federal laws and, and rules at play here.
2: Sure. So uh, the very, very abridged version is that, you know, immigration processing is a part of the U.S. code called Title 8, and that includes asylum a law and asylum law essentially says that you know any non-citizen who is on u.s soil and that includes the border and ports of entry has the ability to begin an asylum process as usually when it's with somebody that's arriving without documentation it's a so-called defensive asylum process meaning that it's a defense to a removal case so they're in immigration court the government's trying to remove them the asylum is a defense to that now as uh, of March 2020, at the start of the COVID pandemic here in the United States, the government uh, through the CDC issued an order that's, you know, colloquially known as Title 42. The Title 42 really is the entire public health statute uh, in, in the law. But, you know, the Title 42 order uses a portion of the sort of public health code uh, that allows the government to prevent the entry of goods and individuals that may Risk introduction of communicable disease to the country, right? So it was supposedly a public health order. Now, a lot of you know, even public health professionals have since disputed that you know it was necessary or did really did anything to control COVID. However, the order has been in place since that time, um, in a way that the government has taken to authorize so-called expulsions of people who are seeking asylum. So, basically, um, the the If you kind of arrive at the border now to seek asylum, there's a chance that you may be turned essentially expelled either back to Mexico or to your country of origin without access to an asylum process. So the people that we're actually seeing in New York are people who've already been able to somehow circumvent that process, either because they have some specific type of vulnerability or Mexico has refused to allow an expulsion or there's kind of another reason. Uh, And so, you know, one of the, the kind of big things that are on the kind of you know, looking forward is what happens if and when Title 42 is actually terminated. And at that point, we would expect actually a larger volume of people to be able to, you know, seek asylum and enter the country. Right. And that actually seems like it's going to be in May. Uh, The Supreme Court was considering you know legal arguments around whether certain states could challenge the termination of Title 42. It actually has struck that from the calendar as of this week, uh, and so it seems like it's going to be made a moot point because Title 42 is simply the the public health emergency as a whole is going to end in May. So it's it's you know that uh, comes into play in on on in practical terms in New York, for example, via the. Uh, uh, the the kind of shifting contours of Title 42 at any given time. So initially, for example, as Julia Julia mentioned, Almost all of the arrivals were from Venezuela, right? There were a lot of Venezuelan arrivals in New York uh, of, of the folks who were being bused to New York. You know, the vast majority were Venezuelan. That demographic has shifted in the last few months as the federal government has moved to incorporate Venezuelans more heavily into Title 42 expulsion. So all of a sudden, you know, a lot of the people who you know would have been arriving in New York City a lot of the kind of the flow of venezuelans has dried up because they're being expelled at the border so instead that's why you know the the folks that we're getting now are mainly sort of colombians and and, and you know peruvians ecuadorians things etc uh, etc cetera, et cetera. so you know it's kind of like this this weird sort of constantly shifting federal policy and it really has a a significant impact in what we're seeing kind of on the ground in new york um but you know the main point, I guess, the main takeaway is that we're kind of in an abnormal situation now when it comes to asylum processing, right? It's not working as it does, quote unquote, normally, you know, in the kind of pre-pandemic period. And so sort of, there's a lot of uncertainty as well over whether normal sort of Title Eight processing is going to resume and when and how is that going to look like? I think that's kind of one of the key questions uh, that we're sort of, you know, all sort of looking at in terms of, you know, what this is going to look like going forward. Sure.
0: Julia, add on to that in terms of um, the background here about what we know about people who are seeking asylum. This is not, um, you know, this is this is not something um that people are taking lightly in terms of this migration journey that you mentioned coming to. The United States, uh, typically through through Mexico, say a little bit more about what we know about the background about why so many people are seeking asylum uh, uh, in this process.
1: Right. Well, the main uh, thing I've heard from folks is really that they're fleeing some kind of persecution in their home countries, whether that's um, political persecution or any other type of persecution that brings them here um, and has caused them to flee their countries paired with um, economic uh, distress in their countries as well. So um, it's really a a combination of, of these factors and, you know, the asylum process, once they get here, it's, it's been tremendously difficult for folks because there just aren't enough lawyers right now in New York city to be able to help them to, you know, understand the process and actually submit their asylum applications, which really pushes back um, everything with work authorization as well. Um, So, you know, uh, they can have work authorization not until 150 days after they submit their asylum application. So first, you know, to even find a lawyer to help them submit this application has been a real challenge um, for people here. Uh, You know, I've been speaking to um, many uh, lawyers and, and other groups offering legal assistance and they're just overwhelmed by uh, the amount of requests they've received. And they're just there's just not enough assistance to help everyone who needs it, especially with something as compl- complicated as um, is the immigration system. Um, so that's that's one thing that people really are, are in need of more help with in terms of the asylum process and that's
0: something yeah. the city oh go ahead Felipe yeah.
2: well i was going to say actually I, I had a conversation recently with the uh, pers- the person in charge of the legal aid society's immigration service legal services unit and she said that if you know she could have 50 more staff attorneys and they wouldn't make a, a dent in in the level of need and you know i i think one thing that the the people tend to misunderstand about the asylum you know the defensive asylum process itself is that you know, you can just kind of say the right words and, and and sort of you're in or whatever. And, you know, it is a relatively low bar to clear, but the only the first step, which is the so-called credible fear interview. Right. It's deliberately set low because, you know, Congress didn't want people to be sort of, you know, denied asylum if they were in, in really in danger. Um, but, uh, you know, after you get past that first step, it is a very, very complex and delicate proceeding in court. Right. And you have to really Furnish lots of evidence. You know, you have to meet really, really detailed standards that, by the way, have been the same since kind of the immediate post-World War II period. It's a kind of persecution on the base of race, religion, nationality, uh, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group is the standard. And so, you know, you can even be in danger, but if you're not in danger for like the right reasons, you can still be denied asylum. So, you know, a lot of the folks that are that are here now, um, you know, really have uh, a very difficult sort of legal proceedings ahead of them or, or kind of ongoing. And sometimes they can stretch also for years. And I think, you know, that also has an impact on on kind of their stability and, and even their mental health. And, and you know, a lot of them have also been through a lot of very traumatizing circumstances as well, which I think is isn't talked about enough that, you know, their level of need isn't just the pure physical, you know, shelter food that's that's there. No no doubt. But there's kind of a uh, you know these layers of of necessity that also are, you know, are kind of almost being put aside because the, the the immediate physical needs are so kind of salient at this time as well
0: there's um questions felipe or julia jump on j- jump in on this too um but there's been quite the, so there's characterizations of people coming uh under this broader typically referred to as asylum seeker migrant category but there's people characterizing uh at least some of these individuals if not all as illegal immigrants uh is any of that valid uh for any subgroup of this of this group we're talking about and two what do we know about um, and obviously that term is is much more of a sort of right wing conservative term, typically referring to undocumented immigrants. But is, is there anything um, valid there in terms of the asylum seeker process and how to refer to the categorization of people coming in through this process? And two. What do we know, say a little bit more about what we know about the sort of registration and vetting process here. Um, You said a little bit about there being something of a low bar, but then there's more efforts under uh, the Trump administration continued to an extent by the Biden administration to turn people away, to encourage people not to seek asylum in the first place. There's been a lot of that rhetoric that has remained, as you've pointed out, uh, Felipe, in a, in a number of pieces and newsletters and such that has remained across the Trump and Biden administrations uh, as different as they are in many other ways or are supposed to be in, in other ways. Um, so say a little bit more about sort of um, – those critiques, those questions, some of that fear mongering, you know, there's different pieces here. Uh, People who might not even be um, typically inclined to refer to undocumented arrivals as illegal immigrants also might have questions about the vetting process and about how carefully people are being, you know, registered and making sure that there is some sort of at least vetting process or, or um you know ability to to sort of track people down if they want to be interviewed or or something like that
2: mm-hmm um sure yeah you know i can i can jump on that and then i'm sure julia will have some um some things to say but uh to your first point um i want to kind of stress and i think this is a common misconception but none of the people we're talking about here are illegally present now it's possible that they may have committed a federal misdemeanor that's 8 usc 1325 which is crossing the border illegally right it's you know some of them may have turned themselves into to cbp personnel at the border um That does not uh, in any way preclude an asylum claim. In fact, the asylum statute is very clear that it is uh, accessible regardless of the manner of entry or the status of someone present. So if folks have already been processed, the government has decided to release them. They've given them a, a future court date. That means that they are present under color of law, at least until if and until they have, you know, their court case pays out and they lose. Right. And then they have an order of removal and in that case you know they they're they're legally obligated to depart or if they don't they they become undocumented right um i mean they're they're undocumented in the sense that they don't have current status but they are in a legal process that makes their presence lawful for the time being um you know i think that that you know that that often gets get, gets lost here but it is you know it's it's a it's a legal process right and it's in it's designed you know in this way where people can petition and there's you know process that has to play out right there's nothing about that that's kind of irregular or illegal um well, sorry. What was your? <laughs> uh,
0: I mean, just in terms of what the vetting process or the sort of tracking process looks like. You know, mm. if if there are people who just sort of say, like, okay, we want to welcome people seeking asylum, humanitarian process. This is in law. This is, but but how do we know who's coming right. in? And is there is there any of that going on?
2: So there's a standard so-called inadmissibility that's 1182 in, in Title 8, and that's, you know, it, it sets out a bunch of things that would make someone inadmissible to the country, right? And so, you know, it's like if you've ever been charged with certain criminal offenses, I mean, there's some really granular stuff, like it's like were you involved in the Nazi war machine, you know, some... It's very unlikely to have that one come up anymore, Um, but, you know, people are are kind of evaluated on those grounds. Most people don't have a kind of a clear grounds of inadmissibility beyond just like not having documents. so, you know, there are people who are stopped sometimes, uh, you know, if they're present, for example, on on certain types of lists. I know that there have been it's been a lot of hand wringing about, I think, even people who were on a terrorist watch list. It seems like several of them actually were Colombians who may have been involved with, you know, the FARC at one point or whatever. So, you know, the, there are these lists that exist that are supposed to capture people who are, you know, of concern for some reason that the vast majority of people are are you know not captured by by something of that of that sort. And then, um, you know, the government, uh, you know, either puts them in, in, in civil immigration detention, uh, in which case, you know, obviously, they wouldn't be showing up here in, in New York. Uh, or, you know, if they are you know, release, then, you know, they're supposed to have, you know, an address where they're going to be staying, where they can be found. They have court dates that are upcoming that they have to attend, right, in order to continue their processes. I think also people sometimes imagine that people don't show up to their court dates. Um, You know, several analyses of the actual data, including by the American Immigration Council, prove that the vast, vast majority of people do go to court and, you know, they they fight their cases and sometimes they lose right uh, but you know they are showing up to court in fact the, the the federal government is itself actually making this more difficult sometimes because it's giving people you know cvp personnel are sometimes giving people incorrect addresses or they're like docketing them in the wrong courts and stuff and people still make the effort to sort of try to resolve those issues and and whatnot um there are uh, a number of so-called alternatives to detention that the that ice utilizes so that encompasses anything from ankle monitors to apps like there's an app called SmartLink that uses biometrics and geolocation to ensure that people are sort of in you know in a certain area that aren't leaving a certain area. Uh, And so there is kind of an active monitoring that happens. Um, You know, that doesn't mean that people can sort of slip away and, and and people certainly do, right. You know, I'm not going to tell you that people never disappear. It happens, but um, you know, I think it, it does get kind of inflated as a concern. I mean, the government generally knows where people are. People are generally hoping to continue with their processes, even just because if, you know, if they don't, um, they're going to miss it you know they're not going to be able to kind of get work authorization right for like like julia mentioned earlier right there there are certain things that the you know they need to be in compliance with to actually get some of the you know benefits of of going through kind of an asylum process and obviously many of them want to win their asylum cases and remain in the u.s so it is not a particularly significant problem of people kind of disappearing though of course it does happen
1: and um, there's yeah, actually, please. yeah, yeah. I was going to mention, there's more than 300,000 people who are right now monitored by this Alternatives to Detention program. So it's a pretty um, significant chunk of folks who are, you know, have to do these check-ins. And for the SmartLink app, they have to send a picture, sometimes once a week, um, let their case manager know where they are. And if you go to the 26th Federal Plaza building, the ICE headquarters in New York City, um, especially last summer and in the fall, the lines outside of the building um, for physical ICE check-ins, which people have to do as well. So they have to go sometimes check in at the actual ICE office and, and you know, tell them that they're here in the country and they're showing up for their check-in. Um, Where It was down the block, people were showing up, were sleeping outside the Federal Plaza building to make sure that they were in compliance. Um, when I went to go report outside the building, a lot of folks are saying, you know, we just want to be able to follow the laws and and do everything according to the rules. So, as Felipe mentioned, um, you know they want to get this work authorization and be able to stay in the country um, according to the laws of the country. So, um, a lot of folks are going, you know, above and beyond to do what they can to kind of um, check in with these rules and and follow the rules as as they may need to. Mm-hmm.
0: So that kind of gets to a second um, big misconception, perhaps, or or purposeful uh, mischaracterization. Often, along with the idea of you know who has legal status and illegal status, um, is uh, sort of sort of questions around um, who is eligible for for what. Um, say a little bit about some of the the work rules, the other rules around public benefits. Um, what it means uh this is i guess a little bit of a side but also under the category of sort of misconceptions or mischaracterizations what it means that new york city is a sanctuary city um uh some some of these details that are often uh, brushed over or mischaracterized julie why don't you uh say a little bit about um sort of work authorizations uh public benefit applications there's there's um discussion around whether New York City should uh, shift the timeline that allows people to get uh, help with rent, you know, rental vouchers. Um, So say a little bit about sort of those uh, real nuts and bolts of people being able to get on their feet once they arrive here to be able to earn uh, an income that is not necessarily just reliant on sort of the gray economy, uh, so to speak, um, and, and the possibility of accessing more uh, public help in order to, you know, then get, get stabilized uh, at some point.
1: Right. Yeah. I think that's the main thing that folks are worried about right now and are trying to do is, is just find work. Right. So a lot of them right now are working cash jobs or um, working really long hours or walking all around the city into bodegas, restaurants asking if there's any availability for work. Um, I even met some folks who, you um, went to florida to help with storm cleanup last year um so they're really kind of going ag- again above and beyond to try and find this work but it's because of these delays with work authorization and and it it's a ripple effect you know if they can't find a lawyer to help them with their asylum application they may not know what they're supposed to put on their asylum application um and then they can't get work authorization without submitting this asylum application so um you know, it's really like they need to find the assistance to for, for someone to just guide them with these with these steps that are that are complicated. Um, in terms of other uh, public benefits, I know the IDNYC New York has made it a little bit easier now for folks to to have that so that they can show that they're um, New York City residents. Um, you know, for kids enrolled in school, that's been uh, uh, I've talked to parents who. Uh, that's been pretty easy for them to just enroll their kids in school. Maybe it's been difficult once the kids are in school because of, of different things, language barriers, et cetera. But, um, New York city has made a push for example, to help, help parents find ways, um, to enroll their kids in school and schools that are usually closer to their, um, where they're staying. So, so New York city has been, you know, uh, trying to find different ways to, to help folks. Um, and, uh, They've been asking the federal government too to find ways to speed up this work authorization, um, but that, that hasn't
0: happened. Uh, there's not no, been no progress on that, correct?
1: No, right now it's it's still kind of stalled, and um, you know I think that's really the main the main thing that mm-hmm. people tell me when I talk to them is that they want to work, they want to get back, they want to get on their feet and not have to rely on the shelter system, for example, um, or on other you know just government help. So um, that's what they're kind of
0: hoping Mm -hmm. for. And um, Felipe, say a little bit about what it means for New York City to be a sanctuary city, what it means and doesn't mean and how it applies or doesn't apply to this situation, because um, I think that that has been quite mischaracterized and misunderstood about how it applies here. And some of that goes back to what we were talking about, about whether asylum seekers have legal status, what it means in their process and documented versus undocumented. But um, Sanctuary City, uh, has typically had a a, a fairly different, different meaning, uh, connected, Mm -hmm. but different. Go ahead.
2: Sure. Yeah. And just to append on the work authorization thing, I mean, I do think that that's one of the biggest issues here. And part of the problem is that it's not like a federal rule that can be changed. It's statutory. So the interventor here would have to be Congress and, you know, just to be perfectly frank, that's not going to (laughs) happen. I mean, it just Mm -hmm. isn't. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like, you know, that's, that's a, that's a huge sticking point. And, And I think people also sometimes, you know, kind of assume that, that, uh, that immigrants are, you know, that this, this style of asylum seeker is eligible for federal benefits in the way that, for example, refugees might be. And that's not the case. I mean, they're, they're fundamentally ineligible for almost everything, you know, with, with very, very limited exception exceptions. Like there's like a program called emergency Medicaid in like really, really narrow circumstances, but, you know, they really can't get much. And so that's also why entities like the city are, are stepping in and, and they're just asking the federal government just just give us money then we'll do the you know we'll we'll administer the things but you know we need we need the funding um as far as as the kind of the sanctuary city just real quick since you brought all that up
0: let's just say the city um is expecting hundreds of millions of dollars that were allocated in december uh from the federal government um they were able to sort of um, passed that before the house changed hands to Republican majority, um, likely not the kind of money that the city was exactly hoping for, but some some significant chunk of eight hundred million dollars passed uh, by the federal government uh, in a in a continuing budget resolution package, uh, I believe, to to provide some aid through FEMA to the city. I'm not sure any of that money has really started flowing, but the city is expecting some of it. Governor Hochul putting in her, as I said, executive budget, uh, some money to help the city with this situation. That, again, wouldn't start flowing until at least April when a state budget needs to be agreed upon with the legislature. So there's some funding in the works here, but um, none, if if much, has has started to flow to the city. But the city is, of course, providing shelter, providing some other help, also providing some degree of health care. So some of that is happening. And then there is this question of who's funding and where the money is is coming from and whether the city um, is, you know, sort of footing most of the bill. And then there's a lot of discussion, of course, too, about how Mayor Adams is characterizing uh, that spending and how it ties into the city's larger budget picture and ways in which at times uh, he's been criticized for sort of pitting uh, longer term New Yorkers against new arrivals and saying that, it, you know, the, if, if he, the city doesn't get help from the federal and state governments, it's going to really hurt people who've been here longer term New Yorkers because of the city's budget situation there's questions about how true that is and and how you know much that is perhaps more of a rhetorical device to try to get more help or or try to get more outrage going to to put uh pressure on federal and state officials to provide more help but um a lot of things to to pick apart there that we probably won't have time for in this discussion uh but go ahead Felipe you were going to comment on anything i just said of course but you were going to go into sort of some of the discussion about sanctuary city <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, just you know, to ping off what you said, I mean, part of the, the I think the issue is like there's the funding question. There's the pure, you know, dollars and cents question. And then I, I and others have argued that there's a logistical role that the federal government could be playing here. Because right now what's happening is the federal government, once people are sort of released from custody, it's sort of hands off completely. Uh, more or less, right? And so, you know, there are steps that could be taken. You know, ICE has an entire fleet, basically, of chartered aircraft that they use for deportations and, and you know, transferring people between detention centers and stuff. And, you know, why not, you know, try to have a, an intervention there of taking people to places where they might want to go with the, with the refugee program that I mentioned earlier, right? Obviously, it's it's a, I mean, it's mean, a very different situation because all the processing happens outside of the country. But, you know, there's a whole network of private public public partnerships that the government foments to like help people arrive in places where there's already like support groups waiting for them and all these sorts of things. And and sort of, you know, having a version of that with, with asylum seekers, where they kind of coordinate with local and state leaders, nonprofits and stuff to actually place people where they might have a, you know, a better chance. And it's not so chaotic is something that, you know, people are pushing for. And, I think it's worth discussing. Also, since we're mentioning refugees, the federal government has way, way, way undershot its uh, refugee caps for the last two fiscal years. And so maybe if more of that processing were happening, you know, uh, externally, it wouldn't be as chaotic of a situation here. But, you know, setting that aside for a second uh, in terms of the kind of the sanctuary uh, question. It very basically, you know, the, the base definition of a sanctuary jurisdiction is really just that it does not cooperate in federal immigration enforcement. It doesn't really mean anything else. Now, have different, you know, jurisdictions do different things. Like, obviously, New York City goes above that and tries to provide a lot of active services for uh, for undocumented folks. But, you know, it's almost, you know, at this point, it, it's kind of like the, the, the federal government isn't actually attempting to to conduct enforcement on this population because it's already aware of them. They're already in removal proceedings. It's not like they're going to arrest people and put them in removal proceedings. They're already in removal proceedings. So, you know, there's not it's kind of a, you know, whether the city cooperates with ICE on on these individuals specifically is almost a moot point. I mean, there are some circumstances where, you know, it could have an impact. But, you know, the, the government's aware of them. The government has them in removal proceedings. Now, you know, the city, of course, you know, go doesn't just limit itself to that. And as you said, kind of provides these additional you know, services. um, But, you know, that's not that's not really what a sanctuary city law. Right. Right.
0: But there are there's legal and colloquial definitions, I suppose. But but at its basis, as you're saying, you know, the sanctuary city law that the city passed, under Mayor de Blasio and city council speaker, Melissa Mark Viverito um, was really about the degree to which city agencies and entities are going to cooperate with federal immigration enforcement and and sort of the the basis there that for the most part, they're forbid from coordinating except under situations of the sort of most serious alleged crimes that might be committed um, or or, uh, instances of um, a judicial warrant or, you know, certain specific, very specific sort of higher level, more serious um, situations. Correct.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's stuff like, you know, like co- coordinating on release of, of individuals from criminal custody, things like that, that, you know, like aren't necessarily, you know, at issue here with this. I mean, obviously they're at issue with New York City's very like large standing undocumented population that that has been around. Right. But with this sort of group of people that we're talking about, it's not really uh, at issue as much.
0: All right. We are in our last five or so minutes here. I'm joined again by Felipe de la Oz, the, a lecturer at NYU and CUNY, a member of the editorial board at the New York Daily News and co-founder of the weekly newsletter devoted to immigration policy called Borderlines. And I'm joined by Julia McDonald Nieto del Rio, who is an immigration reporter for Documented through Report for America. You can find them at DocumentedNY.com. It is a nonprofit news site devoted solely to covering New York City's immigrants and the policies that affect their lives. So, Julia, let me bring you back in here uh, for just uh, let's let's come back more uh granularly here now to a little bit about um conversations you've had and and you really have uh you know just uh incredible body of work covering this situation over the last 10 or so months that people can read up on at documented. Um there was a lot of controversy around some of these uh these hercs, these humanitarian relief temporary shelter sites that the city has sent up, uh set up uh there was an announcement a couple of days ago that that a new site will be set up in queens but more recently there was a lot of controversy over the one opened in brooklyn at the cruise terminal um I don't want to sort of relitigate and recap all of the the questions around how the administration tried to move a lot of single men from a Midtown Manhattan hotel there and there was a lot of challenges with that but you went and you've talked with people staying at this um this Herc this center uh say a little bit about how that's working on the ground I mean some of the the criticism of these sites including that one is that they're too remote and that they Create even more challenges for people who are trying to find some semblance of work, or they're trying to meet with lawyers and and other things like that. Say a little bit about how some of this is working on the ground in your reporting, and some of the the positives, the negatives, the challenges that that you've seen.
1: Sure. So I think the main thing I heard from folks was that first of all, they were very grateful to the city for offering them any shelter at all, and and food, and you know, a place to sleep. Um, but They said there were, of course, things that could be improved at the Brooklyn uh, Cruise Terminal. Um, And as you mentioned, um, it is remote, right? So folks were used to living in Manhattan where they could hop on the train in the corner and go find work or go to work or go to their meetings, whatever they needed to do, go to their legal assistance meetings. Um, And now, obviously, it's a further walk, train ride, uh, bus ride, ferry ride. Um, The city is providing free ferry tickets and some um, extra uh, bus, some more bus schedules, I believe. Um, So folks were grateful for that. But yeah, some people had to walk more than a mile to get to the train and just take more trains to their job or Mm -hmm. whatever they needed to do, right? And something else we heard was just the lack of privacy in there. So it's a structure that can hold a 1,000 people and the costs are... Pretty like they're all right next to each other. So there's not really a place for privacy at all, is what some folks said. And although they were very grateful to have a place to sleep, you know, in some of these shelters or hotel shelters, they were just two or maybe three to a room max. Um, now everyone's together under under one roof. So that's obviously, you know, tough for folks as well. Um the, some people said also it was there were some heating issues. Um, they were sleeping in their winter coats. So it was a little cold in there. So You know, there's a couple things that can definitely be improved. And um, but the main thing is these folks want to be able to get out of these places and sustain themselves and find work to sustain themselves. So they were very grateful to the city. Some had no complaints at all. Right. And some um, had some things that said could be improved. Um, But, you know, it's it's really a mix. And and they're looking for um, places to go other than that so that they don't have to rely on the city
0: are there other things that people most want from the city? There's obviously the federal work permits. That's, you know, a different category of things, but from the city, you know, there's been a lot of focus on what mayor Adams is and isn't doing. He thinks the city deserves more credit and of course, more help for what they have been doing. As you say, there are people, you know, migrants who are very grateful for what they're doing. Then there's also questions about, you know, some of the mayor's rhetoric and whether that's, you know, particularly helpful as I got at a little bit and, and, advocates like from the New York Immigration Coalition have been very critical of some of the ways the mayor has spoken about, you know, asylum seekers repeatedly as, you know, this very big burden on the city and about, you know, sort of pitting uh asylum seekers against people who've been in New York. Longer, sometimes not that long, not, not that much longer, but but longer term New Yorkers and the stress on the city budget and so forth. Uh, some of the things I mentioned and some other things that um, advocates and, and others and some elected officials have pointed out. But in terms of specific things from city government. um not so remote locations, more privacy in some of the shelters, uh, perhaps, you know, being able to stay in a hotel setting versus one of these larger hercs. I mentioned earlier, expanding city eligibility for rental assistance programs. So that's probably a big one. Anything else that people have mentioned that they really, um, you know, would appreciate, would need from city government specifically that could really help them get, again, more settled and more established in the city?
1: Sure. Um, I think one thing definitely that was highlighted um, with the situation at the Watson Hotel and the Brooklyn Cruise Terminal was that um, a lot of these folks who had gotten used to a certain um, shelter were then being moved and and uprooted pretty quickly um, from uh, already what was a temporary situation, but you know, a situation that they had kind of gotten used to and already finding their footing in a new city and then being told pretty quickly that they had to move to a completely new part of the city, um, new home, uh, all grouped together, um, was hard for them. Um, And I've also heard from other folks in the shelter system who have received letters that they don't know what they mean, that they might have to leave in 10 days or they might have to move shelter systems or shelters to make room for someone else in the current hotel that they're staying at. And that has been happening across the city. So, Um, In terms of, you know, really giving people stability um, for however long they need to stay in a certain place um, until they can find work has been important. Um, You know, we covered the story of of one uh, Colombian asylum seeker in Queens who unfortunately died by suicide. And and we talked to her husband and one of the main things um, Her husband said, "Is that she was, you know, having difficulty finding. She was in a remote area of Queens. She did not have a lot of support at the shelter itself, so had trouble finding translators. Um, She couldn't leave her kids alone." Um, because it's against shelter rules to go find work. So that made it harder on top of all the other hurdles. Um, she could pay for child care. Um, and so, you know, she was kind of stuck in this in the walls of the shelter um, in a kind of far off place in the city. So really kind of bringing the assistance closer to where people are living. And if there is assistance, making sure that people are aware of it and can get there. Um, so, you know, yeah, kind of creating more um, hubs, I would say, for the the city assistance that is mm-hmm. available. Maybe there's not enough yet, but um, making mm-hmm. sure that it's, it's closer and that people know about it.
0: All right. That's something definitely, I mean, Felipe, you, you mentioned this earlier, and something that, that has been raised is also uh, mental health care as, as part of um, services available. Something else I've seen mentioned a number of times is um, you know the ability to get some, um, you know, some sort of even even crash courses in you know English language learning um, or longer term adult you know uh, literacy and, and English classes that have obviously been part of what the city has been doing for a very long time uh, in certain ways and and often comes up in city budget discussions about the funding for those classes and and things like that. Um, We're just in our last uh, couple minutes here. Felipe, say a little bit about um, what Adams is, you know, from your viewpoint, sort of getting right and getting wrong here. Um, He keeps calling for what he says is a, quote unquote, decompression strategy at the border. Uh, He wants the Biden administration to do more to distribute migrants and asylum seekers around the country uh, in different ways so that not such a large number arriving in New York City uh he wants, you know, more again, more federal attention and more coordination uh, from the federal government. You spoke a little bit already about how that that could possibly be done in, in some ways. Um, but say, say a little bit more about what you think the mayor has sort of gotten right and gotten wrong here. And, and, and we will uh, we will conclude here. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, I think some of the discomfort or with with Adam's rhetoric, you know, on the kind of broader than just kind of the, the concerns about characterization of the migrants is that, you know, he said some things about, you know, the federal government doing its job and and securing, you know, things at the border and such. And that could be read as him, you know, advocating for for restrictions on asylum of the sort that are in place and have, you know, worry, a strategy of the the Trump administration in particular, although the Biden administration has kept a lot of things in place. And so, you know, I think, you know, people feel like his purview is New York City. Of course, he's worried about what's happening in New York City, but that he shouldn't, you know, seem to be part of this movement for, you know, kind of clamping down. And and so um, I think, you know, he's, I am very sympathetic to the position that the city is in, in the sense of like, you know, this was, this wasn't expected. I mean, I think people sometimes say like, Mm -hmm. oh, well, you know, New York city is always receiving immigrants. It's, this is nothing new. And that's true, but this situation specifically kind of was a little bit unexpected. You know, we weren't prepared for it really. Um, And so, you know, I think that like he has tried to dynamically kind of respond to it. um, But, you know, he's also kind of a, an instinctive counterpuncher and stuff. And so sometimes I think he dismisses offhand ideas that, that could be helpful, right? Like, you know, when people, there was a story recently about, for example, houses of worship that were volunteering to, um, you know, take in more more migrants and such. And so it, it, it seems like sometimes like he's, you know, on the one hand talking about how well uh, we wish people would step up and we had other solutions. On the other hand, he seems not to have been necessarily kind of a, a you know, exploring alternate solutions that were presented, so I think you know it, it is a. It's been a very kind of difficult situation to respond to. I, I you know, he's done a, a. He has a mixed record, in my view. On is it. it
0: is it valid to say that the that there is a lot more room for a quote unquote decompression strategy where the federal government is better at in sort of insisting people go to more places and and encourage people to go to different states and cities? Is that a valid thing to to be asking the federal government to manage?
1: I
2: think so. I mean, the federal government takes on huge logistical challenges all the time, and there are a thousand towns and cities across the united states that have lost population in the last 10 years that are desperate for for workforce you know for for you know people to come and and, and grow the economies and such and i think like if there was a little bit more of a federal emphasis on yeah on on sort of you know managing a, a nationwide strategy in the way that you know adams and and even huckel can't do then um it would it would be better maybe for everyone right not in a coercive way of like you have to go here you have to go there necessarily but like there i think you know it's a it's a perfectly fair thing to wonder why the federal government is not attempting to to kind of coordinate something uh you know that 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 kind of lands more diffusely across uh the united states especially given that you know there are a lot of places that that would love that to, to kind of receive more migrants um and, and sort of have them, you know, be part of their their communities and their economies and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Um, as we wrap up, Julia, let me ask you if there's anything, just any one more thing that we haven't gotten to you think that's important to make sure to add to this conversation. There were a few different things, of course, uh, on my list here that I haven't been able to ask you both about. But in uh, in the interest of, of your time and not taking up too much more of it, any one more thing, either from your reporting or just from the larger discussion that you think we haven't gotten to that needs to be said? Um that you want to add here as, as we close up. I mean, I know there's, there's a few different uh, pieces of this that, that we haven't gotten to, but anything else um, that's come through in your examination of this uh, situation that you want to raise here in our final minute.
1: Thanks. Um, thanks Ben. Uh, well, you know, I'd say just in terms of like city preparedness, like it it seems like people are still going to be coming to New York. Right. So um really listening and um making sure that i guess all sides are being heard and, and needs are being met but um the city is is doing the best they can in some instances and um yeah i think all the migrants i've spoken to are just are very very grateful for the city assistance so mm-hmm. um, i just wanted to to highlight that and and yeah they're always thanking uh, anyone who has helped them and have said that new york is a very um welcoming place overall so
0: interesting All right. A good a good place to end on. You've been uh, listening uh, to me, Ben Max from Gotham Gazette and Felipe de la O is a lecturer at NYU and CUNY, a member of the editorial board at the New York Daily News and co-founder of Borderlines, a weekly newsletter devoted to immigration policy. You should check it out and subscribe. And Julia McDonald Nieto del Rio, an immigration reporter for Documented through Report for America. Find them at DocumentedNY.com. It is a nonprofit news site devoted to covering New York City's immigrants and the policies that affect their lives. Felipe, Julia, thank you very much for joining me. Appreciate all the time. Thank
2: you. Nice talking to you, Ben.
1: Thank you so much, Ben. Yes, Felipe. Thanks.